Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast, then you've at least daydreamed about visiting Antarctica. Maybe you are even one of the lucky few that have visited the land of whites. Between flightless penguins, hunting whales, rugged mountains, and treacherous seas, Antarctica is as raw as it is beautiful. Since Antarctica is notoriously grueling to reach and almost impossible to study, scientists have had to develop creative methods to answer scientific questions, especially when the question needing to be answered requires being all over the entire Antarctic Peninsula at once for the duration of the summer season. How in the world does one accomplish such a monumental task? By partnering with the tourism sector. And how do you go about that? Well, today's guest, Allison Kusick, answers this question and so much more. Allison grew up in the Pacific Northwest with a particular dislike for oceans and most bodies of water due to the a near-death experience her mother suffered in childhood. Allison grew up with a fear of the oceans and had totally written off the field as a potential career path. Yes, the irony. <laughs> When it came time to pick a major in college, she researched how to become an astronaut since no other group of people travels more than them. However, when she took her first biology class, she had an aha moment that determined the rest of her future. Following, she worked in neuroscience labs, took several field jobs, and traveled the world volunteering on and leading conservation trips. She eventually decided to leave field work and landed a job studying phytoplankton. In 2013, she took her first expedition to Antarctica, and her life was forever changed. Now, she's a PhD candidate at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, a founder of the Fjord Fido Project, a polar guide, and has been called a polar hero by Condé Nast Traveler. She even starred in Jeff Goldblum's The World According to Jeff Goldblum series on Disney+. Allison and I have so much fun covering everything, including her incredibly winding path that led to today, how she discovered oceanography after being terrified of the ocean all of her life, why her work studying Antarctica's phytoplankton is vitally important to understanding the region's entire food web, and what the science is telling us about what is going on in this part of the world. If you're enjoying the show, share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend that might enjoy it too. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all the podcast shenanigans, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter to be the first to hear announcements and never miss a future episode. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Allison. Allison, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and officially checking off the last continent for the Rewildology podcast. I'm so excited. Today we're going to chat about Antarctica. Oh, I can't wait to learn everything from you and just ask every question I've ever had. And so we're going to get, oh, we're going to have so much fun. But obviously, Antarctica just didn't happen overnight. And from our last conversation, it sounded like a very winding, winding path to get to where you are today, which I want to explore every nook and cranny. So let's just start from square one. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And when in the world did you discover your passion for nature and conservation? 
Great question. Also, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's awesome to be able to have this chat with you. Um, so thank you. Uh, to start way back when, uh, let's see, I was born in uh, Seattle, Washington in the US. And as a child, I was naturally just drawn to nature, like making mud pies in the backyard and picking blackberries, the, the invasive Himalayan blackberry. <laughs> and um, I think too, and I went to Montessori school, partly for daycare because my parents both worked, but I remember vividly releasing the uh, monarch caterpillar oh, butterflies yeah. that we yeah. had. And I don't, I don't know why I just remember as a kid, like the sunbeams streaming through the tree leaves and then the butterflies just flying away. But having had that experience, watching them transform and metamorphose was uh, very impressionable uh, as a kid. So <laughs> I think I just equated like a fascination with nature um, from that young age, but not really tying it to something specific like science until much later in life. Um, I was born and raised in various neighborhoods around Seattle until I was 33. I didn't move down to San Diego, California until later in life. So um, I've kind of had, yeah, a very winding road poking around in nature-related jobs and fascinations. And I don't know where to start with all that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's, maybe let's start with college. Okay. That, I think it's like the first time that we really have to start making life decisions and figuring out what the hell we want to do. So what's that journey that you started down that maybe you started to dip your toe in a little bit? Maybe what did you study? And then let's go from there. Yeah, that definitely those, um, the polls when, uh, I think it's high school, they ask you, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up and you do a career report and you try to find people to shadow. And, and I had actually traveled for the first time at the age of 15 and I knew that I just loved traveling. And, um, so what I looked up uh, for college when it was time to like figure out what you wanted to declare your major in. I decided to uh, see the people who travel the most in the world, I thought were the astronauts, <laughs> they go to the moon. So I was like, I'm going to go to the moon. So I'm going to see what astronauts get degrees in. So I looked it up online and a lot of them had uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math related degrees. And so that's basically, you know, after I decided I was going to go to uh, college, because many people in my family had their they're just high school is the furthest degree um, they have. So going to college was a, a big decision at that time. And then deciding which major I was going to choose was incredibly difficult. So I chose biology and geology. I was going to do a double major. <laughs> and through all the foundational coursework, uh, I realized uh, biology I was really passionate about. I was just sitting in a biology class and the professor was talking about how plants grow. And I remember having like my heart do this little flutter. And I was like, is that what passion feels like? <laughs> I think that I'm passionate about biology and geology was really awesome too, but it didn't, it didn't have the same sort of like, I don't know, like, like butterfly effects in me. So not to bring back to the, the <laughs> young experience I had with butterflies in Montessori yeah. school. Um, and so that's when I declared I'd do biology as my major. And I still had no idea if I was going to, what I was going to do with biology. And um, I didn't do any active like space programs. So 
Um, I think I was just enjoying school and through geology, there was a lot of field trips that we went on. So I took a field trip up to Friday Harbor uh, Marine Labs in the San Juan Islands in Washington. And I remember we did a dredge where we took a boat out and we gathered up the um, sediments and then it was cold and wet and windy. And I was like, I am never doing anything with oceanography or on the water. Like this is miserable. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think for me, that's kind of how I spent most of my time is, is wanting to have these field opportunities and experiences, but not getting them through biology. I actually got a lot of those later in life. And then my senior year of biology is when a genetics professor I had said to the class, if you're interested in science and you're thinking about becoming a scientist, you should find a job in a lab, even if it's just washing dishes. And I was like, a lab job? Like, huh, I never considered that. <laughs> so I just wandered the hallways looking for little advertisements with the phone number paper strips and ripping off the phone numbers and ended up applying and getting hired uh, twice a week to work in a lab, immunology lab. And then a woman on campus had started an internship program. And so I signed up for that because I was like, I'm about to graduate. I think I need to do this internship program. And the idea was to partner you with institutions around Washington. So I started doing a six-month internship in neuroscience. And um, yeah, through those experiences was just kind of the kickstart of my scientific career, <laughs> which has yeah, continued to be windy until I'm now you know, in oceanography, studying the coldest, windiest ocean on the planet. <laughs> but I did not start that way. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you could have easily gone down one of these other paths, probably studied human medicine of some sort, human health. I mean, you were in immunology and neuroscience. Those have nothing to do with phytoplankton and the polars, polar seas. So... <laughs> How did that happen? And also, too, just like you kind of hinted at, you know, you were not a fan of the ocean. So clearly a lot of life factors happened in between. So why did you leave neuroscience and, and go into more of a biology route? And then how did that lead to your now ocean career? Which is so funny because <laughs> you hate the ocean. <laughs> I know. I feel kind of bad because many ocean people are like, ever since I was young, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I'm like... My mom almost drowned off the coast of Washington as a teenager. And so I vowed to never have anything to do with the ocean, um, which is quite interesting. So uh, because of that, because my mom, you know, growing up, we didn't have we, we would go do camping trips by the ocean, but it was never it was like stay out of the ocean. It's dangerous. Um, and then my experience in geology with like being just miserable, not properly in proper gear it was like dressed like a city kid on a. <sighs> <laughs> so, and I knew that I went to the University of Washington. I knew they had an amazing oceanography department, but I just was not interested in that. Um, I think I'd always, in addition to thinking being an astronaut would be cool. I thought that being a rainforest biologist would mm. also be really cool, but I, I don't know if I'm like subconsciously, there was something happening in the university where ecology seemed like a soft science and then like molecular and genetics was the, the rigorous hard science. And I picked up on that as a student, and which I think is why I went for immunology and neuroscience initially. Mm. And, and I remember one of the ecology professors just talking about how he sits at cafes thinking of sloths. And I was like, yeah, that's a soft science ecology. 
<laughs> now I'm like, what? That's like the best job in the world. What are you <laughs> yeah. talking about? So, um, yeah, I, so, okay. We had the neuroscience internship through that. I thought it was really cool to be able to basically, we were cutting up mouse brains and making an online brain atlas with the Allen Institute for brain science. And so I was cutting them up, sending them off to get fluorescent labels attached to them so we could see where the genes were being expressed at different tissues in the brain. And then I would take all those and reconstruct 3D models. And so I was like, this is so sweet, but I hate the computer. (laughs) And then immunology was similar. It was like, I love working with my hands and being in the lab, but I don't care about the actual topic that, you know, is the main research priorities of the lab. And but the instruments I was using, it's funny because I'd use a, an instrument, a flow cytometer to count mouse blood cells, which I now use to count phytoplankton from the ocean. <laughs> so Full you never circle. know how certain things are going <laughs> to like come back. Yeah. And then um, eventually I just got kind of tired of being in science and thought I didn't like it anymore. And I quit. And everybody's like, don't quit. You can't quit. You have to have something lined up. How could you just quit? And, um, and I just quit. And at the time I had been married, so I had some support to fall back on and then just started looking on the internet. And I actually found a bunch of field ecology jobs. Um, and one of them I applied for had the technician they had hired for the summer to look at songbird diversity and how urbanization affects the distribution of songbirds. He interviewed me, the PhD student, and, and he's like, do you know anything about birds? And I was like, not really. I know about crows and, and robins, and, but I'm good at language and I'm good at music. So I'm sure I could pick it up and like bird calls and stuff. And he hired me and that set me off two and a half years being a field ecologist, random jobs every couple months to find seasonal work. And then I think after two and a half years, I was like, I need to get a job that's salary nine to five. Like I have other goals in life too. And I found a job working in a lab that I wanted to make sure had an environmental focus. So it was a posting for looking at the genetic response of diatoms to ocean acidification. (laughs) And I was like, what the heck are diatoms? Like, I remember (laughs) from geology, we learned about Mm. diatomaceous earth. So I was like, I know what diatomaceous earth is. (laughs) And the scientist who ended up hiring me loved that I had had so much field biology work because it meant to her that I cared about the questions she was asking. And then I had all the lab skills because I had worked and gained all those lab experiences in um, neuroscience and immunology. So it was sort of this perfect blend. I thought I was giving up field ecology at the time. Like I would never go back into the field. And so I would just be running highly controlled lab experiments. But three years into that job, my boss, Monica Oriana, got invited to be on a grant from the National Science Foundation to go to Antarctica in the Ross Sea for 53 days. And she was like, I don't have time to go. So you're going in my place. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, I always thought I'd go to Antarctica as a tourist. And this is now me going as a scientist, but also I've never been on a ship or on an expedition or like, I don't even know half the things I should know, but I'm just going to figure it out fast. So yeah, that was my first exposure to Antarctica and oceanography. And on board the ship, the chief scientist was giving his graduate students a course in biological oceanography. And I just sat there and I was like, oh my God, like Antarctica feels like being an astronaut, like I'm on another planet. 
I'm traveling, I'm in the field and oceanography is sweet. Like, why did I ever write this field off? So I decided when I had landed, this was 2013, that I would like, that's it. I'm focusing my career on polar oceanography. And if I ever go to grad school, which at the time I was not set on, I would focus on polar. So <laughs> that's how that happened. <laughs> I just have to ask just more of my own curiosity. So someone who was like so anti-ocean and now you're on a ship and one of the most remote places literally on this planet, how'd that go? I mean, obviously <laughs> it ended up okay, but like, I mean, were you scared? Were you nervous? Like what was that first experience on an expedition for you specifically? Yeah, I think it, I mean, obviously a lot of feelings of, um, of imposter syndrome in the sense of like, oh my God, I have to figure this out, but nobody knows that I don't actually know anything. And so I think it was just like nervousness from that, but also just extreme excitement because it was like a dream come true that I feel like, what did I do to even set myself up for, for this gift? Like <laughs> to me, it felt like a, yeah, like she, my boss bestowed this opportunity to me. And so I was just incredibly excited. Um, yeah. And, and stepping off the plane. So we took a, we flew to Christchurch, New Zealand, and then took the C-130 Hercules to um, the McMurdo station, one of the U.S. stations. And I thought Antarctica would just be flat white, like you see for the South Pole. And there there's like mountains and volcanoes. And I'm just thinking, what, this is insane. And it's so cold. And I'm just like a little kid, just super giddy and excited. And, um, but yeah, definitely nervous. And then I think too, just in awe, like the, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like another planet. You're just in awe of the scenery, but you're also in awe of how massive everything is. Like the ice shelf is huge. I mean, a ship is huge. I think too, I get seasick. <laughs> so I definitely, there it that. is. <laughs> So a lot of people are like, I can do it. I'm seasick. I'm like, I get seasick every time. Like there was, we spent 10 days crossing back to South America. And I think I spent every meal just sick. And, and I was like, it doesn't matter though. Those brownies, I'm going to eat them anyway. <laughs> At least I'm going to enjoy them once. Yeah, so. <laughs> but I definitely get seasick. So I just take medication. I just know that I'm not going to will myself through it. Like I'll just take medication. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you're in like on the ship too down there in the Ross Sea, we're in the ice. So I you actually like didn't experience open water conditions very often. We were we were calmer. It's like kind of protected in that way. Um, so it wasn't until we left the Ross Sea and we're crossing open ocean that it was like, holy cow, I'm I think I'm gonna not make it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like spent four hundred dollars on Thai food when I got back. Like I just want vegetables <laughs> and fresh things and flavor. <laughs> I'm so hungry. <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard that. Um, that's the Drake Strait, right? That you cross Drake Passage. Yeah, Drake yeah. Passage. Yeah, I've heard that's yeah. some of the roughest sea conditions on the planet. Yeah, and you're just. There's nothing you can do about it. You're just on that <laughs> ship and you're going to get food. there when you get there <laughs> and lots of vomiting along the way. <laughs> yep. Sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep. 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 I've heard that multiple <laughs> occasions and I still want to do it. So <laughs> yeah. Well, now I've crossed the Drake. I mean, this isn't a lot compared to now. I know the polar guide world, they cross all the time, but 
I've crossed 12 times and it's only been that one time on the research vessel that was awful. Wow. And I, I don't know if it's because the other vessels are just better at compensating for like the balance. And one ship I took, it was so smooth. I was like upset that there was no, <laughs> was like, how do you, this is supposed to be an experience. And it just, I don't even know I'm on the water. It's so smooth. I didn't earn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so funny. That's so funny. Okay, so we are officially to Antarctica. Now, this might be too much of a jump, and if we need to reverse it a little bit, let me know. Okay. So what did you do after that? What are you currently studying? Like, you are you are elbow deep in this. Like, you are so deep. <laughs> like, this is your life now. Yeah. And you're also working on your PhD. You're asking a lot of questions. You're partnered with a very specific group of people that I'm very fond of because I happen to be in the same industry. So <laughs> what is it that you do now? The kind of research and everything I just kind of hinted at. So we made this big jump. Now we're officially into Antarctica and the polar region. So let's explore that. What do you do? What do I do? I, I um, so I guess in a nutshell, I am a polar phytoplankton ecologist it looks at behavior of phytoplankton in relationship to the environment, but also at a genetic level. And so I'm in the PhD program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and I'm focusing on biological oceanography, which is really like the study of, of or life in the environment. So um, when I first went down, that project in the Ross Sea was tracing the fate of algal carbon exports. So I, when I later went to graduate school, I was like, you know, I have a lot of background now in phytoplankton from that job working in the lab running highly controlled experiments. So I don't necessarily want to leave phytoplankton, although I thought like maybe I could study some other organism. But I, phytoplankton are really awesome in that they're single cell organisms that you seem maybe like they're kind of boring because what is our daily relationship to phytoplankton? It's like, you know, you maybe bioluminescent tides, you've seen the waves glowing. Maybe um, you eat like marine algal superfoods. It's like a green powder, diatomaceous earth you put on your insects or if you have a bug infestation, but like in there's algal biofuel now, but in general, it's like, they're kind of not in part of our daily lives. So I was like open to other opportunities but they really do provide an awesome kind of way to study genetics and ecology and they grow fast in the lab. So you can do highly controlled experiments, but you can also go out to sea and study them on ships. And you can also use satellites to study phytoplankton. So I think for me, phytoplankton has been like a conduit for the type of science and, and questions I'm interested in and different tools available. <laughs> And then the more you think you learn about phytoplankton, the more you start to go down these like rabbit holes of like, what the heck are they? Like, they're not a plant. They're not an animal. They're not a fungi. They're not an archaea. They're not a bacteria. They're this whole group of life called protists. And phytoplankton is just the Greek word phyto for plant and plankton for drifter. But really it's, it's any single cell protist that can use sunlight to make energy. So that's why it's kind of like a plant It has chlorophyll in it. Um, and so I think, yeah, the more I learn about phytoplankton, the crazier it is. It's like sci-fi. So if you like sci-fi, anybody out there, they have crazy feeding strategies 
And then of course, trying to relate them to how they're being affected in the polar environment because they're you know, living in these cold conditions. There's, um, I work with phytoplankton now on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, so that has a lot of influence from melting glaciers. So there's a lot of fresh water coming from the glaciers on land that enters the marine environment. So my research questions now are looking at how is this melting freshwater influencing the diversity of phytoplankton and when we see certain phytoplankton showing up during the season, because that matters for the next layer of life that eats phytoplankton, which is the krill. And then of course, in the polar system, the krill are eaten by whales, seals, and penguins and all the other animals down there. So trying to understand that, but of course, it's also hard to understand that big picture just with one research ship alone, which is then how um, tying in and partnering with the tour vessels has been an awesome collaboration because tour vessels are on the peninsula bringing visitors down all five months of the sunlit season. And then in the winter, you know, the sun doesn't come up and the ocean freezes and then nobody's really there. It's like maybe a thousand researchers are still on the continent total of all the nations, but yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, aspects that have been woven into running a project, looking at phytoplankton in the water, on ships, with travelers, with polar guides, with satellite tools and genetics. It's like, I don't know, it's like a melting pot of amazingness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get down into the nitty gritty of really analyzing every single step of what you just brought up, let's take it up maybe a higher notch to why this work is important. And then we can dive maybe a little bit deeper and uh, on the actual execution of it. So we all see these clickbaity headlines. We all see all of the stuff that's going on in the Antarctic Peninsula and what's going on the continent and that everything's just bad, 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 bad. And that might be true. And I would hope that like, I would love if you could enlighten us on this, but what is actually going on? in Antarctica. What are you seeing as a polar ecologist that is studying this area? Is everything that we see in the headlines true? Are they not? What is going on from like a conservation standpoint in this particular part of the world? What are you seeing? Yeah, great question. Um, because I mean, the polar regions in general are experiencing the most rapid rates of warming from air temperature, but also ocean temperatures rising. And so because these places are cold, that has a big impact um, in, in the kind of like dynamics that we're seeing. On the peninsula, it's a, some of the fastest rates of warming have been recorded, I think because it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. So it's getting the influence from warming air, but also that ocean circulation that's warming can come up onto the shelf and reach those those glaciers that hit the tide line, the tidewater glaciers they're called. And so we know researchers have been studying different changes in the peninsula. And there were two studies done that show that 87% of the glaciers on the Western Antarctic Peninsula are in retreat. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely happening. Um, there's definitely an increase in warmth that's down there, which isn't been, you know, the, what we talk about is like, sure, Antarctica is extreme and you can have very dynamic changes, but it's the rates of change that are concerning in that sense with the life side of things with the phytoplankton, 
if we know certain months, different things happen in the food web, then we can kind of get an idea of how the system might respond. But one of the things I was finding with phytoplankton is that that's the base of the food web, like the first step of what could be affected by these warming waters and changing physical and chemical properties of the ocean. And so when you start to think about how the phytoplankton are changing, it's like flowers and wildflowers blooming in a field or like produce or agriculture, different things are available at different times of year, different phytoplankton are available in the system at different times of the year. And, and so if you're a krill that's looking to eat a certain phytoplankton and you're an adult krill or a baby krill and you don't find it, then you you might get a shift in what's available. And then you might either have a negative consequence for your, you know, livelihood as a krill, or it might be a positive, it, who knows? So there's winners and losers in this, but definitely filling in the gap of which phytoplankton are there and what sizes and what types and what diversity and how that's changing can help us get like another glimpse into how things might change for the whole food web. So it's important, I think, to, to understand not just phytoplankton based on like chlorophyll measurements, which is how a lot of this is done, just like a bulk reading of the pigment chlorophyll that you can see from satellite or from instruments in the water, but actually getting the water and looking at which species are there, because it could be the difference between like iceberg lettuce and kale. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, that's an analogy to, to vegetation, but you know, or, a what's something more fun, like a jelly donut versus a whole wheat seeded bagel. Like, <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> It's like the, the amount of the type of phytoplankton decides the amount of organic carbon that's available or energy that these krill can then eat or not just krill. There's other, you know, fish that need it. Every marine larval stage that goes through a planktonic larval stage relies on eating different sizes and types of phytoplankton. And so it's kind of, it's kind of like knowing which types are there and when they're there, not just December, like every December we know it's like, well, okay, but what happened from October to March? So kind of filling in the, the whole seasonal gap is I think important. Yeah. So since you're studying the most base level of the food web, that it is the Kickstarter of the whole thing, what is happening? And you're in the years that you've been going down this. And so you've been going down this since 2013. I mean, that that's some time now to really start collecting data what have you seen along the years? Has the species changed? Has the food web changed? What's going on? <laughs> I think it gets complicated because on the peninsula, especially um, the, you know, there's the peninsula is a very long piece of land or archipelago of land and ice that sticks out. And so the Northern part has different influence than the Southern part. And then that's that's because of how the ocean circulation occurs and then also you have different weather patterns it's like um have you been to the south shetland islands no so so the peninsula has like the main <laughs> peninsula and then there's like a little group of islands off to the northish of it and and so every place on the peninsula could have a different dynamic. And so mm. it's really hard to just make a blanket statement about what's happening. And so researchers have 
you know, said, oh, satellite data is showing there's a decrease in chlorophyll. So that means phytoplankton are disappearing. But then we're like, well, satellites are only seeing a surface layer of the ocean. So we really need instruments in the water to detect where these phytoplankton are deeper down, they're like 60 meters up to 100 meters. Like, where is there actually more phytoplankton? Not just because of what the satellite can see from the surface. So there's a need to like ground truth what's actually happening. And so um, I, th I think it's just really hard to say. It's like there, every place is so dynamic. And Antarctica as a whole is so dynamic. So what was happening in the Ross Sea when I went in 2013 is kind of a different ecosystem because there's sea ice uh, more year round than on the peninsula where sea ice disappears really pretty quickly in the when the sunlight returns. Um, and so the system too is different in the environment, so to speak. Yes, it's cold. Yes, it's covered in ice. But but kind of the the timing of how these things happen is it's kind of hard to extrapolate to the whole continent. So yeah, I think that's also why it's important to get multiple years of data because you know you can say one season compared to another season, something crazy happened, but it's like, well, that could just be because that was the dynamic that year. Like it's a very, you know, it's Antarctica. It's, <laughs> it's harsh, it's high winds, it's, it's extreme sunlight. There's yeah, a lot going on. So I think that's why it's difficult to just say this is what's happening. But it's also why I can get a PhD in this topic because we don't actually know the answers <laughs> to many of these questions. So there's a lot of lines of questions and research that's available for people to pursue. Um, and it's compared to the rest of the world, a very data limited region of the world. So as far as like oceanography knowledge goes, um, also the polar regions are covered in clouds all the time. So even if you do think you can learn a lot from satellite, you have cloud cover. So then it's like, okay, well, how do we now see through the clouds so we can measure the color of the ocean and how it's changing. And then if we're down on the ship, you know, you put a mooring buoy in, or you put sediment traps in, and then you come back a month or two later to check on everything and your instruments have disappeared because a big iceberg came through. Like, <laughs> so I think relative, it's just a hard place to work. And, and so when we do this project, um, that I run with the, with the, um, travelers and the tour vessels, if we're out on a sunny day, I'm like, yeah, this is a sunny day. This is great. Like we could be researchers down here. But as soon as you get a bad day or the winds pick up and you're like, we're calling it off, no sampling, nothing's happening. Like, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of data that you don't get just because the environment is so extreme. It just won't let you. It's like, I think there was one morning we set out to do a phytoplankton sampling and it was like nice and calm. And within the hour like crazy wind gusts came off the mountain and then the sea swell and chop got really bad. And we just like all called it. We were like, we're going back to the mothership. Like, and I was, and they were like, Oh, no phytoplankton today. And I was like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the ones that got on our face from the sea spray. <laughs> so is it too early then to make any general statements you feel? Do you feel like you need more data or like, are you seeing a general trend downward from when you started collecting data or just shifts or, or has it been enough years to make general? I mean, it's been almost what, 10 years now, pretty close uh, well, to it. So the 2013 project was totally different than what I'm doing now. Mm, so the okay, one, okay. 
Yeah. So that, that was just looking at one, the Rossi as a model system for, you know, you have al- a big algae or diatom is a type of um, algae that has glass silica as its housing. And so it was looking at how they bloom or grow rapidly. And then the carbon moves through the whole system. Whereas on the peninsula, um, we've been collecting samples since 2016. So 2016 and 17 was kind of the, the trial year where, where it was the first initial contact with the polar guides and one of the ships and um, the research team. And then um, it was like, could you take some you know, bottled samples? And then that year we kind of developed a bigger program uh, through a citizen science project. And, um, and so with that, we had 2016, 17, 2017, 18, 2018, 19, and then 2019, 20, but the end of that year ended in chaos because it was the beginning of the pandemic. So we really only have three years of data and then we didn't, nobody went last year. So we don't have data from last year. So there will be like a one and a half year kind of gap in data. So with the first three years, it's so we analyze it in two ways. There's under the micro microscope, but then also the genetics side where we extract the DNA and look at the RNA and how the genetic side of things is changing. So through just the microscope stuff, we've been able to detect phytoplankton that hadn't been observed before. So we, it might be a new species. That's something we're looking more into. Um, and then we documented a couple blooms uh, or large amounts of phytoplankton of uh, the smaller sizes or what we call flagellates. They have little tails um, that also hadn't been seen in that high of numbers before because everybody's really focused on um, diatoms, which are what krill love eating. Krill selectively feed on diatoms. The Southern Ocean is known to be dominated by diatoms. Um, and so in that sense, with the microscope work, my colleague in Argentina, her name is Martina in Argentina, <laughs> um, she's been looking at the results from those samples. And then the genetic side, <laughs> believe it or not, it takes a long time to actually, so I'm learning how to, well, I've extracted all the DNA and the RNA, but I'm learning how to then analyze that kind of data. And so with the pandemic kind of stalling access to the lab the last two years and Mm. me having this learning curve of um, the analysis tools side of things, um, we, I haven't yet analyzed it, but it will be done in the next two years because I have to graduate with this PhD. (laughs) (laughs) The goal is to have it all analyzed with the story in, in my PhD dissertation and in publications and share that with the scientific community and the online public portals that we can have find that are open access. So, well, yeah, it's not, you know, you're going to come back on them for that. Once that's done, I'd be like, okay, round two, let's go. What, what it's, like a, it's like a sad answer though. Cause the answer is like, I don't know yet. Cause I'm still processing and analyzing. No, that's samples. okay. That's so real though. I, <laughs> That's what I just absolutely love about this show and bringing on people that are in every single stage of their career. It's like, it's even you, any of us could look at you and be like, oh my gosh, she has accomplished so much. And here you are sitting down with me and being like, oh my God, I still have so much left to do. I still have so many questions left to answer. I have years left of work ahead of me. And it's so hard for us to see that because we just see, what are you talking about? You go to, you've got 
you've crossed the Drake <laughs> 12 times. Shut up, you know? And so yeah. it's, it's contextual. And I absolutely love that. And that just also gives us a great excuse to sit back down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all a work in progress. Right, right. If, but, if yeah. we all had all the answers, then why would we be doing this? You know, exactly. what, what, would, what would be the motivation to keep going on? We'd just be drinking pina coladas on a beach somewhere and then we'd get <laughs> real bored. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need to know more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think the next logical thing too, and I would, God, I'm so excited to ask you more questions about this, is... How did this project come to be? How did you start this citizen science project with Polar Taurus? Like that idea is probably just blowing people's minds right now. The only reason why I've heard something about it is because I happen to be in the same industry. It's the only reason why I know anything about this. Like, and that's just like such a small sector of people. So like, how did this idea come to you? And then how did you actually make it happen and how'd you turn this into a PhD? I know that was a lot all in one, but I feel like they're all connected. So like, yeah. what, what is this? How does this come to be? What is this crazy thing, this monster I've created? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's again, it's kind of like the, the loop-de-loo long winding story. So, so I, let's see, the first time I went to Antarctica, I went as a researcher. And so my lens of experience was through science. And when I was down there, I learned that there's, I mean, I, I knew there was like a tour industry, but I had, you know, back then I was just like, oh yeah, you sit on the dock in South America and just wait to jump on a ship. So <laughs> I was like, I don't really know how that works, but, um, but it, it'd be awesome if that travel community could somehow get involved in the science because, you know, the whole continent of Antarctica was preserved under the Antarctic treaty for peace and science in 1959 so it was during the cold war where you know the, the nations recognized like oh maybe we shouldn't destroy this place we should all work together in a awesome community or international cooperative agreement um and so actually the space treaty exists um modeled after the antarctic treaty oh that's <laughs> where there's super to cool. be no military uh, activity militaries can support research that goes on but um but yeah, so it was, uh, to me, an awesome place. And I personally love outreach and engaging with the public and education. And so I also had been spending my vacations when I worked in the lab. Um, I missed going into the field from the time when I had been a field biologist. So I would spend my vacations looking for other researchers' vacation projects like Earthwatch had a lot of um, programs with doing biodiversity in the Amazon. And then there was rainforest expeditions, ecotourism, where you can go volunteer to help with the macaws. And then um, I did a big cat internship, internship where it was taking undergraduates to Africa and learning about photo identification of big cats. And then use vacation to do wild dog work in uh, Zimbabwe. And so it was like, I knew in my mind that you could, I personally loved traveling for science just as a, as a traveler, a voluntourist, I guess was the term that was coined. And, and then I knew that I loved Antarctica. And so I also had reached a point in my life where I needed to, I needed to, I wasn't feeling competitive in the job market because I had 10 years of experience, but only had a bachelor's degree. And a lot of people in science now have masters. And so I just felt like I was hitting the ceiling 
And so I kind of was like, fine, I have to go back for a <laughs> master's degree. You can I'll say it. <laughs> like, I, this is so stupid. I've been doing such cool science with just a bachelor's. And why isn't my experience speaking for itself? And, you know, screw the system. Fine, I'll go get that piece of paper. <laughs> but I also knew there's actually a woman um, who I was on the ship with in the Ross Sea in 2013, getting her PhD. Her name is Cassandra Brooks. She's one of my inspirations. So she was doing her PhD on, um, she's looking for the larval toothfish, which hadn't been found yet, which is a big fishing, um, like Chilean sea bass is the oh. misnamed uh, name for Antarctic toothfish. And she wanted to work on um, the policy side of things in the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area, which is now the world's largest marine protected area. And so that was her whole PhD. And I was just like, oh my God, you can do more with science than just run experiments and publish papers. Like I just hadn't even considered because that. <laughs> that's all I had been doing. I was like, you know, I hadn't seen another application for science. And so when I spitefully started looking for master's programs <laughs> in my early thirties, I was looking for short programs. I was like, I don't have time to be in a grad program for too long. And then I was also looking for something that was interdisciplinary. And I actually hadn't considered scripts because I always thought of them only as a PhD granting institution, but now they do undergrad marine biology. They have master's degrees, PhDs, like they've expanded as well. And they had a one-year program in marine biodiversity and conservation. And you basically came in for one year and just act like an entrepreneur and dream up whatever your year-long capstone project will be. And so I came in knowing I'm going to focus on polar. I looked up who, what researchers were at Scripps that did polar, bio, like biology. And Maria Vernay did phytoplankton. My old boss back in Seattle knew Maria from past times. And the other options were like, you know, penguin ecologists or whales. And I was like, eh, I guess I'll stick with phytoplankton. So I had a lunch with her and trying to see like, what could we do? And at the very end of the two hours, she's like, oh yeah, by the way, I, um, I know one of these guys who works in the polar tour industry. And I was like, what? Like <laughs> you, you saved this till the end of lunch. Like tell me more about that. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, this guy, Bob Gilmore and, and Annette Bombosh, like they were in touch with us because we were doing research in Antarctica on the peninsula and one of our graduate students' pieces of equipment broke. And so we had asked if they knew anybody coming down to the peninsula that season. And Bob said, yeah, for sure. We can, you know, Zodiac cruise over to the research vessel and give you this instrument piece. Can we come on board for a tour? And they were like, no, not allowed with the, you know, regulations. And but Bob was like, well, you guys can come on board the tour ship and give lectures and and like, you know, hang out with us in the evening. And so my advisor, Maria, brought bottles. She's like, oh, by the way, can you take some bottle samples? So that was the first trial of like, can they finish off the rest of the season? Because when the research vessel was down there, they had intended to capture this um, spring or sorry, late summer bloom. Mm. And, and when you plan a grant, you just pick your dates and then it might be a year or two from then that you actually go. And Bob was like, oh yeah, that bloom happened three weeks ago. We were down here. Like we saw it and you guys are kind of late. Sorry. <laughs> and so it was like, I think that, that was Maria being like, okay, 
continue taking samples the rest of the year till the end of March. And then we'll like, see what, what's different about what we don't know. What's the gap and what we thought was we would expect, but that we clearly didn't capture in the moment. And so then I showed up on the scene in my own life, looking for a master's degree and a project. And I met Maria and then she introduced me to Bob and Annette. And then I just started kind of cold calling everybody I could who had any affiliation with anybody in the polar industry. And then I was simultaneously dreaming up this idea with my experiences in, in personally ecotourism and personally volunteering on my vacations. And then I really tried to understand the, how the expedition logistics work and also, I didn't know about citizen science, so I started attending different conferences and, and learning from experts on how to design and manage and run a citizen science project. And then I um, adapted Maria Vernet's research questions. You know, they were looking at one specific fjord in Antarctica, and with the collaboration with the tour vessels, we could expand to multiple locations over the five months of time that they operate. So it was kind of like this kind of combining all the different elements and then really getting to know each aspect of it. And then I came to one of the polar guide conferences, um, under the, um, thanks to the secretariat of the international association of Antarctica tour operators. <laughs> and I was, I pitched this idea, like at the time it didn't have funding. So at the time it was just, this is an idea and we want to see if there's partner interest and it could be a thing. And I felt like, oh my gosh, if I, if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, I want polar guides around me because they're like <laughs> the most competent outdoor people I have ever met in my life. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody's story was so amazing. Um, and I was trying to, I was like, I'm a field biologist. I can, I can hang outside, <laughs> but um, yeah. And then we got funding from the national science foundation and that following year. So I thought, you know, if this does become a real thing and I want to learn how to write a grant and a proposal opportunity opened up and so Maria and I submitted an idea and I'd also been presenting at scientific conferences. Like what is the scientific community going to think of this? Like, you know, it's, oh, it's not trained scientists collecting data. Like, and I was just like, you know, it's, you choose the simplest method to get the answer to the question you're looking for. And there's some very user-friendly, amazing equipment out there now that could be used that we calibrate and then we know that it's calibrated properly. And then we write really simple protocols that might seem simple, but, you know, maybe we, you know, expand on how it's, we do the training and then test it out, like see how it goes. Everybody can make an observation. It's just collecting seawater and like there's certain steps that you have to follow, but, you know, down the road, there's ways to quality check that and it's not going to continue forward if it's bad quality. So we have ways to do that. And so, yeah, I kind of was trying to see what each citizen science, I also learned the federal agencies in the United States now fund citizen science programs, which is amazing to me because I was like, you used to have to spend pages explaining and justifying that citizen science is a valid method of data collection and or analysis. And so you don't have to do that anymore. They, there's the, It's accepted. And so I was like, that's awesome. The tour industry is eager. There's people who are interested in bringing these activities on board for engagement with travelers and Antarctica's place for peace and science and polar research is like a legacy thing down there. And, um, and so I thought, oh my God, somebody will need to analyze all these samples. 
and it doesn't exist as a job to run this program. So I guess I have to be the PhD student. Like that's the only <laughs> way I could see it like existing. Yeah. And so I, we wrote in the proposal that I would start the PhD program and it didn't get funded right away. <laughs> so I was like, dang, well, you know, dreams, dreams don't have to die. We'll just get back to it later. And then three months after the summer, I'd found work elsewhere. Um, my advisor called me and she's like, Hey, remember that proposal we submitted? It got funded and you can start the PhD in three weeks. And oh. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> that's amazing. So wow, here we are. And now we've got funding now from NASA this year. So, you know, the idea is that we're out in these boats with travelers, ground truthing, actual water samples and instrumentation that's calibrated to specifications good enough for validating satellites in space. So yeah, it's been wow. amazing to watch it grow. And it's just like, it, yeah, it's, um, it's, I think at this point we should probably say what your project oh, is actually called. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good time to name drop it. <laughs> so the project is called Fjord Fido. And it's because the original project Fjord Eco was looking at the ecosystem on the fjords and I, many people might not know what fjords are actually. So fjords are just areas along the coast that had been covered in glaciers. So wherever the last glacier ice age extent was, when those glaciers retreated, they carved out the rock. So they left these U-shaped valleys. And if they're on the coast, they filled with seawater. So that's what, that's a fjord. And many of the famous ones are Norway, um, New Zealand, Chilean fjords. There's fjords everywhere though. There's Alaska, British Columbia, um, yeah, you just look at, um, kind of the polar region to the subpolar region is where you find fjords. So, and then phytoplankton is cause we're studying phytoplankton. <laughs> so fjord phyto. That's awesome. Well, I'm a huge supporter of citizen science. I did uh, a little bit of it in my master's too. So the power of it is absolutely amazing for just scientific literacy, which our society is lacking a lot. And then also data that you could never get otherwise. Like you can't be on all of these research vessels for five months across the entire Antarctic Peninsula. Like it's amazing the power of numbers can really do, especially when you have someone that's trained. And so let's let's go through that. Let's say that... Tell me what it would be like if I am on one of these vessels and I am in your project, I am in your Fido project and I'm helping. What would that look like for somebody who is wanting to wanting to participate? What would I be doing? Yeah, good question. Um, so you'd be on the ship and you'd probably hear like, join the science boat <laughs> or phytoplankton <laughs> experience. And so the idea is depending on your size of your Zodiac, you could fit, you know, eight to 14 people in the boat. So you have that many people join you. And, um, and then we go, there's certain GPS locations that we go visit. So any tour, um, sorry, any polar guide that is trained to do Fjord Fido has this list of GPS coordinates and they're, they're made intentionally, um, with where, tour operations are occurring as well. So it's not like you have to go take your boat on some far journey and <laughs> you're, you're usually near the landing site or where the main ship would be anyway. And so y'all hop in the boat and we drive off to the GPS site. And then um, the project really tries to get people to have hands-on experience. So the guide or myself 
um, or Martina, whoever's leading the project, would be the one who's trained. So then they'd get the different guests involved. So it'd be like, okay, you know, here's the goals of the project, the questions that the, the scientists are asking. And so we have different, we have a kit of instruments that we're going to drop in the water and we're going to have some sample bottles. So we'll take some physical samples as well. So then you ask who wants to be the scribe and nobody likes being the scribe. Like nobody <laughs> likes writing. It's like your, your handwriting's fine. You're going to do great. <laughs> so that's like that's the funny. scariest one for people. <laughs> so they'll be the scribe to take the data, which is really important. And then there's an instrument called the CTD, which stands for conductivity or measures salinity, temperature, and depth. So this instrument can tell how much pressure of water is above it to know what depth it's at. And because we're interested in the surface phytoplankton, it's going to 60 meters depth. And then as it's descending, we can see how the saltiness and the temperature of the water is changing. And oh, wow. we use iPads. So some of these cool instruments can show you right then and there this what this looks like. Um, and you, we also have a new instrument with the NASA funding that has a chlorophyll sensor on the side. So we can also see where there's like the highest chlorophyll signal. Um, okay, that's really cool. I'm getting yeah. out. I'm not even on a ship right now in Antarctica. So I'm just like, this sounds really freaking cool. So just want feedback. to watch that. Like, yeah. wow. Talk about engagement. Like, yeah. So it's, it's definitely like, yeah, an immediate feedback thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it's underwater, it loses connection, but it comes back out of the water and it will talk to the iPad. And so you can, or tablet doesn't have to be <laughs> not promoting anyone's <laughs> technology. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can talk about that. And you know, and as a guide, it's awesome for different interpretation mm. to topics. You literally go on tangents about anything. But then you'll drop um, another instrument, it's a, basically a disc that is can either be white or black and white. It's called the Secchi disc. It was actually, you know, in, in the 1800s, just a guy on a ship threw a di dinner plate overboard and it sunk and he realized, oh, I can tell how much light is going through the water or when this disc disappears. It tells me something about the clarity of the water. So it's the turbidity. Um, it doesn't tell you what's in the water, but we use that as a measurement. So the, you know, you can look over and see when the disc disappears and then that's kind of our light level indicator. And then, or if there's a lot of phytoplankton growing, it will disappear within a meter or two. And mm. if I think the deepest I've seen it go personally was 19 meters, it just kept going and going and going. <laughs> so there was like, not really a lot of phytoplankton. I'm going to say it was clear water. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then um, there's a new sample that we take that's just seawater and that's, we can bottle that up and send it off to a lab in Oregon that analyzes the oxygen isotopes. So that actually tells us if there's fresh water, is it from melting glaciers on land or is it from sea ice? Like depending on the oxygen isotope ratio. Oh, really? Us, yeah. So oh, that's cool. So I don't know if you want me. I do actually. Okay. Do you see me like geeking out a little bit <laughs> yeah. right now? Yeah. I, yeah. Things so, are like, <laughs> please so explain. Like visual person. <laughs> so how I visualize this is like, you have the ocean and there's oxygen, you know, 16 and 18. So there's a heavy and a light isotope and they're both being evaporated and 18 is heavier. So imagine bowling balls and then 16 is lighter. So just imagine like a ping pong ball as they're going up away from the ocean up into the mountains and you know start forming clouds or precipitating the bowling balls are heavy so they're going to be falling out as 
as this evaporate rises. So when you get up to the top of the mountains and it's falling as snowflakes, that's a lighter oxygen 16 is the lighter isotope remains. So then that glacier then comes back down to the ocean. The fresh water that's melting from the glacier will have a signature of lighter oxygen 16 to 18 isotopes. So you can tell if it's ocean origin or land glacier. <laughs> I, that's chemistry. I mean, those they're chemistry crazy. I don't know. I love chemistry. So. I love it way freaking more than physics. They're like, yeah. either you're a chemistry person or you're a physics person. I'm like, God damn it, I'm a chemistry person. <laughs> physics freaking sucks. So I was like, this is well, I like, love I'm that stuff. I'm biology. <laughs> it's, yeah, the biology. <laughs> Well, it has context, so it makes it cool. It's like, oh, I get it. Like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that's one of the samples we have them take. And then, so to measure then the phytoplankton, there's two different ways. We do one is, again, just seawater collected in a bottle, and we add a dye that's non-toxic. So it um, stains the phytoplankton, but it also kills the bacteria and anything living in there. So it kind of freezes it. So then my colleague Martina in Argentina can analyze under the microscopes without them being destroyed. So they maintain the structure of what they should look like. So she can do species identification and she can also estimate based on the size and shape, um, how much carbon biomass they would be contributing, which is then how we know if we see more of one type, like the diatoms, we'll get more carbon available for the system, but there might not be as many diatoms when she's counting as there are the smaller species, flagellates, but they might not contribute a lot to the carbon biomass unless they're in really large numbers. And then there's so many of them that they do make up a large signal for the carbon bio, organic carbon that's available for the, for the other animals to eat. And then, um, so that's where we get our quantitative information, mm -hmm. like cell counts per volume of water and, and uh, yeah, measurable things. And then the, the other method we use is a phytoplankton net. So we have like a 20 micron mesh net. So if the human hair is average width 80 microns, we're collecting things slightly smaller than a human hair and they get pulled through the net for 10 minutes. And then we filter all that down. It looks like a little coffee pour over contraption. So they filter all the seawater out and what's left on this filter is just the phytoplankton. And so that gets preserved in a little tube. And then these things get sent back to, at the end of the season, they, you know, they get stored in the freezer, but in the boat, I always say like, okay, how did that feel? Like that some people are like, that was amazing. One person was like, I've never felt the childlike spark of curiosity in so long. Cause they were, wow. it was like tangible, something that they could contribute to in this big expanse of an environment. But I also say like, maybe this one boat didn't feel like a lot, but imagine that this is happening over and over and over again throughout the whole season on other ships. So in one season, maybe we have a hundred uh, sampling events. So a hundred like groups of samples come back to us. That's if you imagine maybe there's 10 people in each boat, that's at least a thousand people just participated in collecting this data. And we have that many more samples that we wouldn't have from these coastal areas. So it's, it's kind of, I think that's the beautiful, powerful part of it is that 
it seems simple, like such a simple little protocol. Sure. Whatever. But we just learned so much when we put the whole thing together. So. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. What else do you do? That's, that's all you do. <laughs> for lunch or dinner <laughs> talk about the fun you had for the day yeah, yeah. and then share share the photos of the day and 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 it, oh the other part with phytoplankton that's key i know i can't believe i almost left this out it's like the secret weapon of of algae biologists is a microscope so you collect the water maybe it looks clear Maybe you collected the water in that net and it looks brown. Like there was, you know, one, it could look like pea soup. So brown, but it's not until you actually put a drop of that sample under the microscope. And then you see these amazing little single cell creatures and they're all different shapes and sizes. Some of them have like spines and a crown of like spines coming off the top, or some of them have little like teardrop shaped bodies and they're moving around. And that's when people are like, what? Like, no, no, that's in the water. And I'm like, yeah, you were there. You collected this. All I did was take in a little eyedropper and put it here. That is, that's phytoplankton. And they're just like, no. And so, um, one of the other things we're trying to do is all those samples that have been collected from the participants. There's no book that exists as an actual like identification guide. So we're trying oh. a user-friendly, like novice, not for the expert taxonomist we're trying to make like a it's going to be bilingual spanish english because south america is a big gateway out yeah. of the polar um but it's a, a guide using the samples and photographs from past participants to have different identifications so that if i'm not there any guide or any traveler could be with the microscope and see something like oh this crazy one that's like a shaped like a pill with spines all around it let me see in the book which one does that look like and then a point to carithron i mean none of these things have common names like birds and flowers get common <laughs> names but nobody's given make them phytoplankton i mean <laughs> you, you yeah. should start making well, them <laughs> please call them something hilarious like every single one like if they all like rock band names or just yeah. something fun <laughs> they're yours no one else no one knows otherwise I like know. it could be your book from the fjord phyto that'd be so <laughs> Well, you can like, like poll your audience be like we're gonna name this phytoplankton go and just yeah. see what happens oh, like it looks like a kayak looks like a hamburger like <laughs> hamburger plankton like hey. so we're trying to make that to to be even more engaging um and then for the novice phytoplankton enthusiast they could purchase their own copy oh, yeah. <laughs> and continue identifying on their next voyage or when they get home. <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be so cool. Yeah. So I think the next step of it is to, I guess one of the biggest criticisms about citizen science and just again, having studying it so hard myself, like there's always the criticism of never having a follow-up. And I can see how this would be particularly difficult for you because your group of people that you've interacted with, the gatekeeper is the actual tour operators. Like you don't have direct way to be like, this is what you did because I legally can't own your email address. Yeah. So what creative ways have you and your team gone around that for this to meet this very particular part of citizen science? Yeah, it's a it's a tough challenge for sure because of that. What you say is is like we don't have access to people's email addresses and and so there's a couple ways like some of the tour operators will link on their website to our project or to other projects that people um, participate in and like the voyage recap or whatever. 
Um, for us personally, we just try to be really active on social media because hoping that they um, remember the name or took a photo or get sent an email with the link, then they can follow us afterwards on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, that way we can share what it looks like in the lab when we're processing these samples. I also love getting um, through WhatsApp. I have some of the guides will send me photographs like, look, we were out in the boat today. And I just love that because I'm not, I'm not the type of scientist who just wants to be in the lab all the time. I love the social engagement part of it. So I'm like, oh my God, you guys look so happy. Click phytoplankton. <laughs> and then we'll share those photos um, of the participants in action. And then we'll try to make little videos when we give a conference. So the pandemic was beautiful in the sense that everything became recorded and online. And so we'll post a lot of those same talks on the YouTube channel or the social media channels so that people can watch. Like, what do we say? What are we telling other people at conferences? Like, what are we talking about? Um, when we have publications, we can share that we've been where we've been published and we'll share the main findings of the publication. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely trying to keep up that end of it. So people have to remember Fjord Fido and then come find us. <laughs> but I've interacted with a lot of past participants I've never even met through the social media. It's like, it's awesome because you feel like you know them, even though you've never actually met them. So, <laughs> But they're part of it. They're, like it would not exist without the help, the collaboration. So. And that's what I love yeah. about citizen science because it really does move people. It is such a profound experience to be a part of this real science and also to see it again on your level, which is why I respect you, like your social media that you've put together so much because that exact reason is like you are finding a way to engage these people that were a part of the science when again, you don't have direct contact with them. That is really a big hurdle. It's like, how do I get this information back to you that you personally helped contribute to? And oh my gosh, yeah, your social media yeah. is so much fun. Ever since I started following you, I'm just like, oh, oh my God, I still put my game. <laughs> Thank Real you. bad. <laughs> well, and we also do try to recognize too, a lot of the work is by the guides. And so it's, we also try to do an annual report and then email that to um, the tour operator and the guides that were trained to help um, engage during the season because, I mean, they're crucial to it as well. Right. Like, yeah. Unfortunately, there's not a way to like, as an individual traveler, bring your own gear and come down and do it. Like it's part of the operation. So, um, so it, yeah, it really depends on the guide too. So it's feedback, trying to give feedback for everybody who's been involved. To be well, like, it's not exactly, yeah, it's not exactly a destination that you could just like book a flight to. So there's a little bit of a difference. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's some organization that needs to happen. Exactly. I, I mean, and if nobody's actually ever looked into what it takes to get to Antarctica, I'm sure that you can imagine it is very logistically challenging and people that have great operational minds put it together. It is one heck of a doozy. So, yeah. <laughs> so it makes sense. And it's so powerful that you've partnered with the tourism industry to make this incredible project happen, yeah. which is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to thinking about that, because one of the other things was like in any given summer of all the researchers from all the nations, there's maybe 5,000, I don't know the exact number, but 5,000 scientists, whereas the tour industry is growing and bringing more than 10 to one ratio of visitors. Mm. And so it was like, what, that's like a prime group of people that are curious. They want to know. I mean, 
you're not forcing them to participate. It's all voluntary. If you, if some people are like, I'm on vacation, I don't want to be involved. And I was like, yeah, no worries. It's fine. It's fine. Just and don't was, get on the Zodiac. Yeah. You're cool. <laughs> I've had some people be like, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I just, I, I care about whales. I don't care about the phytoplankton. And I was like, it's fine. My feelings aren't hurt. I don't care. It's like, it's your vacation. It's just an option. If you want to be a part of it. I had one couple say, they were like, it was the very last thing they decided to do. They were like, oh, fine, we'll do your boat. And then they were like, that was so much fun. I don't know why we saved it to the last. And I was like, it's fine. You had to take advantage of all the other opportunities first. And it, but it is fun. So I'm glad you experienced having a good time. <laughs> so <laughs> just an option. I'm just, I'm just picturing that. <laughs> And again, I'm from the same industry and I know what you mean. Like I've talked to all of those people too on the phone personally. So yeah. Oh, that was just that was more personal laughing. <laughs> I completely get it. I completely get it. So okay, so let's say that somebody is like, okay, thank you so much for enlightening me on what is actually going on, what you're studying, these questions that are so vital to answer. What would you say is a good resource or outlet for, I mean, I really want to know, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, we're tired of clickbait shit. We're just tired of it. Where can we go to know that we're getting good information about what is going on in this part of the world? What are some good resources, maybe writers, publications, scientists, who should we be watching to see what the latest is and it's accurate? Yeah. It's, it's a very important thing, I think, because, because there's so many news headlines and things get diluted and it's like, yeah, what is the source? So I would say if you're wary of like news outlets, then I personally always go directly to something called the IPCC report. So it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And these reports get written every couple of years using uh you know, kind of getting the world's leading experts on climate change topics. And there's a whole chapter specifically dedicated to polar regions. And so I read through that, like that is the best available knowledge that we have compiled by all the experts in the world. It's not just one nation, it's, it's global and it's in agreement. And then they even rate the level of confidence that they have in the statements that are being said. So you can go That's through- powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's like, we are for certain, absolutely certain that this is, we're confident this is true. Um, and so I think because the research community wants people to know this exists, um, and they also give this to policymakers, there's distilled versions and there's little fact sheets and there's science communication friendly, um, documents. So you can download the the shortened version for policymakers. And I even just do that and read the top headlines of what is known and what's for sure a fact. Um, and so I, I would point people to that, like the IPCC reports are the creme de la creme top <laughs> world expert gathered information. Um, yeah. And then whatever comes across as clickbaity headlines, maybe it, it would be like a fun scavenger hunt to be like, is that in the report, like, I mean, the reports are a little delayed in the sense of like, it takes a while to write these, edit them and then put, release them. But it's the, it's, it's pretty dang uh, current <laughs> information because policymakers are using it to inform policy. So I would go there, IPCC reports. 
Awesome. Um, and then from there, you can also get the names of the researchers who put those who are in the working groups and put the, you know, they will cite where they get their publication information from. Mm -hmm. So you could even follow individual researchers. A lot of them might have Twitter accounts or many of them might be active on social media. So you can just go directly to the scientists. Like, I think there's a big push for scientists to have a personal relationship with the public now. So it's like putting a face to science, it's not just this thing. It's like individuals that are gathering knowledge about the world. So yeah, that's what I love about this podcast. It's like, I love to humanize people. It's like, there is an actual human behind that name that's on that publication. Like, yeah, <laughs> that peer reviewed yeah. paper is a real person that just had their life just completely thrown apart because somebody <laughs> reviewed their paper. And I want to talk to that person and be like, yeah. I hear you. It's like, Blood, sweat and tears <laughs> yes. behind that one publication. <laughs> exactly. It's like you're a real person. You are a real person behind that, whatever that paper is that you just published. So like, yeah. let's also explore the science and who you are because you're real people. Yeah. You're real people. <laughs> Speaking of real people, I would love to shift the focus a little bit and go back to you, if that is yeah, fine. Let's, sure. let's, just, let's go back to you. Okay, let's go back to me. Allison. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to Allison for a little bit. So <laughs> we've talked about all this amazing stuff about just being in the peninsula and this incredible experiences that I'm kind of sort of a lot jealous about that I really want to have myself. <laughs> I will get there sometime. We got to go on a trip together. <laughs> Girl, let's do it. <laughs> Okay. I'm not joking. I'm not either. So. <laughs> I am not either. I have a friend in Argentina now, and we need to go drink wine in Mendoza. Actually, her episode is releasing very soon. So let's go drink wine in Mendoza, and then let's go to the <laughs> tip of South America and hop down. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> Done. Done. If anybody wants to join, let me know because <laughs> I don't take this stuff lightly. I just get on planes at random times, as people know, because then they get podcast series about these <laughs> trips that I do. So, but okay, 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 okay. Now we're just gonna put a earmark in that because that's happening. Um, but let's go back to you for a second. Let's let's take away the glam and glitter and beautiful stuff about being a polar researcher. What is it actually like? to be on these ships for a long period of time? Good question. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Um, so, and I'm not even on the ships for very long. Like I'm one of the types of people who spends probably the least amount of time on the ships. Um, as far as polar guides go, as far as researchers go, I think a lot of people are envious of how much time I spend on the ship. <laughs> so, um, but it's hard. And it's funny because I actually just had an, uh, spoke at an undergraduate class. And one of the questions from them was like, how many days have you been down? And I was like, only 280. But it's like, because I'm used to the polar guide world now where they've like decades <laughs> and live on the ship for five months. And, and, um, and I, when I come down, it's for one month maybe two months at a time, um, because I'm in a grad program. So I can't be gone <laughs> the entire time, but every ship is different and every combination of team members is different. And the logistics are slightly different and the conditions of Antarctica are different. And sometimes it's like physically brutal. Like the beginning of this season, 
you know, we were all nervous about how to get back into the swing of things. And then Antarctica was just being a jerk. It was like windy. <laughs> it was like catabatics would come up. The weather was, I felt broken after two months. Like I had to go get massage. <laughs> I was just like, I physically feel like I'm a hunchback with like, I don't like my driving arm is really big and <laughs> for driving Zodiac. And then mentally you can't escape. So if you're having a disagreement with somebody or, you know, there's not really a lot of places to hide and you don't really get one-on-one -on -one time. And so I think when I come back home, I live with a couple housemates. I like, don't want to see anybody. And they're like, Ooh, is Allison okay? And I'm like, no, I just need to decompress. Like, I feel like I'd, I get culture shock when I come off of a, a field season working on the ship. Cause your, your world is so small in the sense of like, you know what you're wearing because you're wearing the uniform or you know what you're eating because you're not cooking your meals. You don't have any pets to take care of. No families around. You don't really have internet to the ability of like staying in touch frequently. And so your world's just like the ship. It's, it's a nice, simple world, but it also makes it difficult if things are getting hard. So you really do have to, I think there's a lot of like that's when like interpersonal and leadership training and team dynamic training, I personally have loved because it's at the end of the day, you're in a little social family that you have to like network with each other and get along and cooperate. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I would also love to go down this path a little more. And this next question might be difficult and it's okay if however you're comfortable to answer. So I'm now to the age and I know a lot of people around me are as well to go through really difficult things like lose somebody that's really important to them or go through a divorce or something that is personally affects them so hard that it might be really hard to stay focused on maybe your greater goal or your career or all these other things that are really important, but might not be as important at the time. So if somebody listening is going through something hard what would you say to them? How did you get through some maybe particularly hard times in your life? What, what got you through? Yeah. Um, like on the, and it related to the ship. Any, in or? any way, in any yeah. way, like from like a personal standpoint, yeah. like I know you said ex-husband oh, yeah. or, or yeah. like being on the ship. I mean, all of these things are related. Like how do you have a long-term relationship on it when you're gone for multiple months? Like yeah. none of this is easy. And yeah. I think it's so, it's so easy for us to just glamorize this kind of stuff, but this is not easy. And as all of us have gotten through further in our career, like, you know, I'm in my thirties now and I've seen people close to me and me personally go through some really hard stuff. And sometimes it is so hard to keep going, whatever it is that that means. And so if someone else is going hard or how did you get through any hard times yourself yeah. in your career and in your time? And maybe if you're on a ship like that, cause that's, just, yeah. that's another layer. I can't even I know. them. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, before I got into Antarctic work, my marriage had ended not because of field work or anything, just other issues in life. And, um, and yeah, being able to leave, I've had friends for the relationship side of things tell me like, how are you going to ever find somebody that's okay with you being gone that long? And I was like, but there's tons of field going people like that can't be a non-negotiable for somebody. But then when you are on the ship, it's like, I think if there is, you know, issues back home or there's like, your life is kind of so isolated down there that like, it's hard to stay in touch 
with the best intentions, uh, stay in touch with loved ones and, and friends and family back home who then might just see, you know, me not responding as quickly or a day or two goes by or even a week. And in my world, I'm just like buzzing around the ship and so swamped and emotionally, like just focused on whatever's happening on the ship that day that I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, am I even going to have these friends when I get back? <laughs> and then you get back and, and, you know, I think now people who do know me know that there's a consistency there with getting back in touch. And, but I, and so I personally haven't, <laughs> this is other, I don't know how to keep a long-term relationship. So I haven't had to navigate that yet, but I know a lot of people in this industry too have families or some don't want families. And, and that's something I might have to navigate in the future. Like, how do you have kids and then leave? Like, who do you set up as a support network back home? So you know, my advisor, she, um, has been going to Antarctica for 30 years. And it was funny because it was like, she'd be gone and her kids might've perceived her as always being gone, but she's there the whole rest of the year. So it's also like making sure the people who you're in your life, you share that with them. I think the more you share, maybe there's more understanding of how the world is so different when you're on a ship versus back at home and have your regular nine to five and have your regular, like, you know, city things. Um, I don't know if I'm answering the question correctly. Oh, it's however you wanted to answer. So <laughs> I would say too, like for me, whenever I go through something really hard and struggle, there's been a couple big struggles in my life. I personally have tried to pour that negative energy into my science and into my mm -hmm. creative thinking, which I actually think is part of the big inspiration for starting my website, Woman Scientist, and for kind of focusing, like realizing I could channel this either self-destructive or negative or traumatic energy into a creative process. And, and so that I think has been how I even through building you know, just a blog, just a video, just a thing here has, has grown its own momentum and fed into my own confidence in, as an individual, but it appears that it's the creative fruits of, of this, you know, it's, but I think it's me reinvesting the negative into something positive for, I don't know, my passions, um, because it's easy to let the, the hard things in life just like drag you down. And I think I was just getting to a point where I was tired of being dragged down. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we're just going to make a little change, invest a little energy into the, something I know I love, which is science. What is it going to look like today? And just focus on what can I do today? And the same with on the ship, like today, what do I have control over? Like maybe I can find 10 minutes to go send a voice audio to one of my, you know, my mom or dad back home, or I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. that's great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Because again, it's just the reality of things. And again, sometimes it's so easy to just see this beautiful photo of somebody in Antarctica that looks like they have the most perfect life and they're doing this amazing researcher and they're giving these talks and like life still happens to them too. Yeah. And everybody has shit we have to go through and we've all gone through it. So like, let's support each other in that. What, and what's something like for you, it was taking that negative energy and turning it around on itself into something positive and diving deeper into your work. And so 
maybe if someone listening is going through something really hard, then maybe that's a really good thing to try or at least experiment with it. With it. You, who knows what creative ideas might come out of that, you know? Yeah. That kind of experience. Yeah. I think too, when you're on the ship, even like research ships and when I'm on the um, tour vessels, be- because you have to face other people all the time, I feel like it doesn't actually allow you to fully process things. Mm. So I find that time goes by and then something will like just jog a memory and I'll just like break down about it. I'm like, God, I didn't even know I hadn't processed that because I'm on the ship. I can't like, I have to do my job, be, you know, people facing, we'll think about it later. And then like after the season's over and I've just totally deflated, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm a mess. (laughs) Like I didn't even realize it was bothering me that much because <laughs> you couldn't address it in the moment so there's some like lingering things that happen that you don't even realize until you've been you like have some space between it so yeah I think just I- recognizing that is is an important step to be like I can't deal with this now but I'm not gonna forget about it <laughs> circle back to that later <laughs> Oh, yes, that's fantastic. I know I definitely have a bad tendency of that. And maybe other people that are super driven might also too. I mean, I don't know if you would fall in that category. Um, But I definitely am where I'm just like, so go, 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 go. They don't even let myself process emotions, which that's not healthy. Yeah. And I know that and I recognize (laughs) that I'm working on it. And again, that has nothing to do with science, but it has everything to do with science because this is what we've decided to do. Like I've decided to sit down with people and explore everything with them. And it's like, I should probably process these things myself too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'd say too, I was talking. So the woman I was seeing for when I was going through my divorce for therapy, she was, I got in touch with her again. I was like, it's been 10 years. Let's reconnect. I'm still not dating anyone. And she was like, all right, what's the game plan? What are you going to do? And I was like, ah, you know, actually I have to go on a ship. And she's like, when are we going to get started? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm not going to give up my career as a field going person. So I'm not sure what to tell you. So yeah, I think that puts a, can stall some aspects of life. Who knows? You might find the most perfect polar guide or something. And it's yeah, like, right. oh, we've bonded over our love of the Antarctic Peninsula and it's love for life. So, yeah. But I've had young women be like, hey, yeah, same question. Like, how do you balance relationships? And it's a real question. And I'm like, I, I don't, but it's not because I haven't wanted to. It, it's just, and it's not because I go in the field, I lose them. They just don't mm-hmm. exist. So <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how to answer those questions because there's some people who thrive. They're like, yeah, go off, do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of our mutual friends, Colby, like his partner is absolutely amazing. And he's gone all the time on these yeah. m- amazing polar adventures and she ranges half of them. Like it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, that's a very like specific example that works really well. And it's just finding that person and, and it might be rough in the meantime. But again, I think most important is following our dreams and not letting somebody smush that because if you're in a great relationship, you're not following your passion. Are you really happy? Yeah. You know, yeah. like that's, right. that's a real question. Like if, yeah. are you actually going to be happy and content in that relationship if you're not following what you feel you were meant to do? So yeah. these are real conversations that we have to have with ourselves, and, and maybe somebody who's further down the line that like, I've been through all of this stuff too. Like this is my experience and it's very real. And yeah, 
Yeah, I don't think that stuff just never gets talked about. It's like, this is a very real part of it. We are humans. (laughs) We're social people. Like, how do we balance this stuff? And is there a way to balance it? And maybe not everybody that can. And so like being real with that. And and if something does go sideways, how do you handle it? And going from there. (laughs) I mean, it's the same in science for sure, too. Because like you finish your degree and then you have to do a postdoc or you get a faculty position somewhere like you know, I, I met, meet a lot of science couples even who struggle with that. Like, you know, does one person have to kind of be more flexible and give up their dreams while the other finds an opportunity for this duration of time? And then like, I, I would love a whole podcast on that. Those, <laughs> I, how do other people make it work? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I have some really good friends now that are, they're now graduating or they're postdocs or just started, you know, lecturing or something like that. And they're like, I am sick of it. I am so sick of moving around. Like there is no such thing as dating. There is no such thing as putting down roots because I don't know where I'm going to be in two years. And just watching them get really worn down from the whole thing. And I mean, it's their passion and stuff, but I mean, I won't be surprised if they call me up soon and be like, I'm done. Yeah. I, I took this job here. I am setting down and I'm not moving again. I mean, yeah, it's like even from this podcast, the number of people I've met, they've like, I've moved three or four times across the entire United States in the past three or four years. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. It's like-, <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you start anything yeah, meaningful no. in that? Yeah. And imagine you have sick family members or, you yeah. know, or kids like how, I don't know. I don't know. It's mystery. Yeah. <laughs> we, need to, we need to find those people and, and ask them what was their actual action plan. <laughs> That's really good. I'll, I'll try to fish them out. If I find mm-hmm. out, like, how do you, how do you do this? <laughs> I asked Colby some of those similar questions. Like how yeah. do you balance a relationship? It's like, Oh, your spouse, happens to do the exact same thing you do just on the other opposite side that's helpful but yeah it's like yeah. a compliment exactly exactly it's like no one understands better than her she does exactly yeah. where you are she like, organized you to go there <laughs> oh that's a perfect example though that's a perfect example so do you have a particularly wild or crazy story from Ooh. your time in the field like what's the first story when I said that that just popped in your mind uh. I want to know that story I'm like, I don't, I think it's the time, my, probably my first year down in, in Antarctica with the tour industry. <laughs> There's a couple times where I'm like, I feel like I might've almost died. And if I told my advisor, she would never let me come down again, <laughs> but it's always the situations where, okay. So this was, this was, I, I tell my undergrads that I mentor this story. <laughs> so we're going down. So I'm in a Zodiac and we get permission to do a series of sampling events down the length of this fjord because the ship's going to relocate in where we're going. So we're like on the way. And um, and so we bring the long range radio just in case and we're doing sampling. And as we're going into the fjord, I'm thinking like, it's getting a little windy. <laughs> like my first experience was in 2013. So this is now 2017 and, and I'm like new to this, the industry. So I'm just like, it's getting a little windy. And then it starts to get a little choppy and I'm like, it's getting a little choppy. And I have this little device that measures the speed of the wind. So I'm holding it up in the air and the guy driving me is like, you know, been in the field for 20 years. So I trust I trust this person and I'm just like, keep quiet. It's okay. Like, you know, we're, we're just doing this. We're going to get some science done. It's going to be great. And then I'm like, now it's reading 25 knots. Now it's reading 30 knot gusts. Like, 
like now the water's kind of like the chop is building and it's sort of when we station the boat to take a sample, like it's kind of getting into the boat. And I was like, and so I finally say like, I don't mean to sound like a baby or scared. And I know I trust you because you've been doing this for decades, but I, I kind of feel like maybe I'm a little scared and we should stop. <laughs> and so we like pull out the long range and call the main ship and they're like, just broadcasting like everybody back to the ship catabatic winds have come up like cancel operations i think we we're on useful island at the beginning of this this fjord and and so we were like okay so it's not just us being like something's changing like the conditions were actually changing and all the catabatic winds which are those like cold gravity driven winds came off the glaciers in the fjord and were just oh. coming straight at us and pushing us out which is why us going into it was getting harder and harder and so when we called the ship and they were like yeah cancel we went back and actually then helped do shuttle runs to get people off the island oh my gosh it, but in my mind that was my first exposure to like catabatic winds not being on the research vessels so I was just like that was so awesome but also terrifying <laughs> <laughs> because you know you always make a risk call before it gets too late you never want to be in a situation where it's a bad one because you miscalculated the risk did it feel but, weird I've never had like a weird wind like that a catabonic oh yeah wind. yeah it's happened multiple even this season it happened and before the pandemic so it was like I, I think this is the coolest part about either being a field biologist or being a polar guide is your need to be aware of the conditions at all times. And so mm -hmm. your like spidey senses are just always on. And so um, there was the, the two other times that are really memorable. There's one where we were waiting to take a flight out and we put, you know, it was like, we couldn't fly out because the, the clouds were too low to bring an aircraft in. So we were like, okay, let's spend a day like visiting this little island nearby the ship. And, and then we get a call from the manager on board and, and she's like, uh, I think that conditions are changing. And we were like, yeah, seems like the wind's picking up within 10 minutes. The wind went crazy. The beach was like having crashing waves on it. We, I had to get in a full kayak dry suit and I was holding like the Zodiac would come in and the driver would spin it and then I'd hold it. And then we'd load people in and then get them back to the main ship. And it was just like the coordination just felt like Braveheart when like the expedition <laughs> leader was like go now go now it was like very directive leading and I was just like this is awesome and like people are crying because they're very extreme and they're getting splashed with the cold water but then when we got back on board and we're like everybody's safe it was fine we got everybody off in time before it got crazy and now we're safe inside with hot chocolate but everybody was just buzzing and we're like we survived <laughs> and like you don't want that to happen but that is antarctica the reality is the conditions change immediately so you just need to be prepared and then that's when you really learn that your team are a bunch of like incredibly competent guides that are just become like I don't know. That's where I romanticize it. I'm like, you're like a magician of the environment. You just know <laughs> how to coordinate to get people back. Um, and the same thing happened this year. It was like calm. And then within the hour, it was like, you know what? These clouds coming off the top of the mountain are like going, uh, they're called rotor clouds. So they're going like, they do a horizontal spin and then they can what? come on the water vertically. And I just remembered seeing this like, vertical wind it looked like a little wind whirl or what do you call 
not a dirt like, devil because that's what dirt, not like a but tornado like, but like, like a little water. mini tornado I don't know it, was, it wasn't <laughs> that big I don't want to but it just I remember seeing it come at me and I was like no and then the wind bank just hit me and it was a pretty strong gust of wind and I was just like this is like fighting with nature like, <laughs> it's, it's literally it's fighting like, back like, yeah like Forrest <laughs> Gump when what <laughs> Lieutenant Dan's like on the mast like just yelling at nature <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> like that's what I feel like. This way, Antarctica, I feel so alive. Like <laughs> you really, yeah. You just have to be on alert and <laughs> and know the environment. I think that's why it's so cool. That's incredible. I didn't plan on asking this question, but I feel like I need to, especially since you just gave me this amazing invitation to come down. If somebody <laughs> wants to visit and. I'm sure as they start looking it up, it's not a cheap thing to do. So is there a way for somebody that might have a modest budget that doesn't have like 30000 per person to spend, which, spoiler <laughs> alert, everyone listening, it does cost around that much to do this. Like, is there, at least from like a high-end tourism standpoint, is there more resources or something out there that somebody could look into to maybe either help or they really want to experience this, but maybe don't have like five digits worth of money to spend on this like yeah. where, where did somebody look put some bargain traveler budget travelers on even then that's not really budget <laughs> i'm not costa rica or mexico we're yeah no. Antarctica, so. yeah i think too when i back in like the two 2010 i i was i had heard like oh it's like 900 dollars to get on board if you wait at the pier and then just jump on when somebody doesn't make it i don't that is not how it works these days but <laughs> so so I don't go as a traveler. So I actually am not like too aware, but from initial digging of what I have Googled, um, there are operators. So it also depends on what you want. So how long can you go? If you only have five days, you're probably going to spend more money because you might need to take a fly-in cruise instead of taking the time to, to cross the Drake. Um, so do you have five days? Do you have two weeks? Do you have 19 days? Do you have a whole month? Like what amount of time do you have? And then what style of ship do you want to be on? Because you could be on a sailboat. You could be on a 12 person sailboat. You could be on a 200 person ship. You could be on a 500 person ship. You could be on a, you know, 70 person ship, like depends on how large of a group you want to mingle with as well and how big of a ship you want to be on. And then do you want to be on a casual homey style ship? Do you want to be on a high-end luxury style ship? And so in that sense, the cheapest I've ever seen a cabin cost, like a room or like a bed in a, in a cabin is $7,000. But I, I don't know what that entailed. you're in a rowboat like like, so I would definitely say that there is a range and it but it will be thousands of dollars um and then of course it could go as high as you want it depending on how many toys you want so um you know you could even yeah go up to 50,000 100,000 like you can spend as much money as you want yeah I mean I think the cheapest I've seen is 7,000 on us I think that was a sailboat Mm. So, yeah, the most expensive. So, you know, again, I'm in this industry and wilderness safaris, I'm pretty sure it was, which is a really high end safari company. They organized this like gorillas in Antarctica. Like there's now this insane tourist 
like luxury camp on Antarctica now. What? And it was like $100,000 per person or maybe even more than that. And they had like a private jet where you would go from literally Africa down to Antarctica. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. I'll send it to you. It's oh real. My, I, well, because this is funny, actually, the, the way I got to Zimbabwe to do the painted dog research was, was there an auction I went to for the researcher doing this, the Zimbabwean researcher came to the U S and was somebody at the zoo. I volunteered at the Woodland park zoo. And somebody was like, Oh, there's a benefit dinner auction going on. You should go. And I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't have $50 to spend to buy a dinner place at this auction, but they're like, it'd be really good networking since you love conservation and in terrestrial stuff. And so I went and one of the packages that they were auctioning off was a wilderness safaris, um, seven nights in the Okavanga Delta in Botswana. Wait, where did you stay at? In um, Vumbura. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah. Vumbura Plains. <laughs> That's exactly where you stayed. But I, I heard the bids starting at a thousand. And in my mind, I had already done like the Africa trip with the undergrads for 4,000. Mm. So I was like, why is nobody bidding on this? And I was like, I got a bid. And I had seen <laughs> a National Geographic explorers had done an Okambaga Delta expedition a couple like that yeah. earlier, year prior. So I was like, I need to go to the Okavanga Delta. So I was bidding and bidding and then it got up to like $8,000 for two people. So I was like, this is a steal. It is a steal. Oh nobody God. outbid me. I think the guy that I was like in the running with, like was like, ah, I'll give it to her. <laughs> and then I went like, just turned into a ghost. I like called my credit card. I like, didn't, I maxed it out. I didn't have <laughs> like, wait, what decision card. did I just I, I called at the time. I was like, this guy cannot think I'm a rich person. Like I am just a lowly biologist. And I was like, I was like, can I help you in the field? And he's like, yeah, if you want to come after your trip, you stay in Zimbabwe with me for the month. And I was like, as long as you want to help collect poop. And I was like, I'd love Done. to help collect poop. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, I turned it into like a Botswana Zimbabwe trip for over a month, but <laughs> wilderness safaris was who we went with, which is, I, it was awesome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the level of camp you were staying in, yeah. trust me, they are not low end by any means. Anyone else? Oh. I think I've been in some of their camps. So yeah. beautiful, beautiful, beautiful camps, but yeah, it was awesome. yeah. yeah. So I was wondering if you'd heard of that trip or yeah, something. I, well, I actually, <laughs> I haven't heard, I didn't know they were going to Antarctica, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to look that up now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I well again, like I'm in this industry, so yeah. I got some emails about it because me and my team were just like, "Did you all see this? <laughs> like, why did we not all have a hundred k per person? Yeah, right. Just spend this. <laughs> it's like we don't. We wouldn't be working here if we did. So. Yeah, <laughs> like, I love you, Bill. I would just be we would just be going off somewhere on adventures if that was oh, the that'd case. That'd be amazing. That's the dream. <laughs> if I had that kind of money, you would yeah. not be paying me. Trust me, we would just be doing adventures all. Day. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not that I gave that up when I decided I was going into nonprofit conservation work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of conversations about that on this podcast. Trust me. Lots. Lots. Awesome. On that, I just love how these things naturally segue to the next thing that I have in my mind. So for anyone listening, and you can make this whatever you want to say, if there is one parting piece of advice that you just absolutely love to share. And that literally this could be about anything. This could be someone coming into the field. This could be someone that's passionate about polar regions or just being eco-friendly, anything. What is something, one piece of advice or a message that you would love to share? 
It's so hard. <laughs> Which one do I pick? <laughs> you can pick more than one. We're not greedy okay. here. I would say, so I would say stay curious and patient. So if you're looking for opportunities to be in this field or be in conservation or go to Antarctica, <clears throat> like it's been eight years of actively trying to go before I finally went. So it's like the patience and just keeping every possible feeler out there. Um, I'd, I'd say that's one maybe encouragement <laughs> I'd leave listeners with if they're seeking, you know, to be in part of this industry or field. And then the other, I have to say, is that phytoplankton are amazing. <laughs> and even though they seem so unrelated to your daily life, like one little phytoplankton not, might not seem that important, but collectively they're contributing to over 50% of Earth's oxygen. Every other breath you take is because of phytoplankton in the ocean. And they're regulating global cycles of carbon and nutrients, which helps us when we put too much CO2 into the atmosphere, they're bringing it into the ocean and turning it into food energy for the whole marine ecosystem. They're the base of the food web. They're, the tagline is they're tiny, but mighty. Um, <laughs> they truly are amazing organisms that if you have any inclination to like learn about some cool new thing, like start learning about phytoplankton because <laughs> they're awesome. And um, yeah, I think too, if you're really curious about polar and, and climate change too, definitely look into the IPCC reports for your mm. sources of information and then listen to all of the episodes on this amazing podcast. <laughs> Nice because like <laughs> the more you saturate yourself with other people's stories the more ideas you have for your your own journey so yes yes and if somebody wants to continue following your journey what is what are all the social media sites websites everything I mean you're very active online which is fantastic so how can someone follow you and keep up with you Oh, I would love if you followed me and I try to engage as often as I can. So if you send messages, I will respond. Hopefully <laughs> if I don't, it's not personal. Um, but I maintain a website called womanscientist.com and a social media woman scientist on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And then I also, if you want to stay in touch with the research portion of the Antarctic Citizen Science Project, Fjord Fido, there's fjordfido.org. And that's Fjord Fido, F-J-O-R-D-P-H-Y-T-O. Um, <laughs> also on Twitter, um, Instagram, uh, YouTube and Facebook. So I would love if you followed along or interacted or shared things or shared things with me. And yeah. And of course, I always have all of those links at the show notes. So everybody's go to rewildology.com and they will all be in one little place. You just go click on all the links. I promise they will all be there. Amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Allison, you are an amazing person and thank you so much for being the person to knock off the final continent for the podcast and just your amazing ways. And if I can, oh my God, if I can send a selfie of us in Antarctica to everybody, like, does it get better than that? Like, I don't think it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, thank you for having me on your show. It's been awesome to meet with you and have this conversation today. Yes, can't wait to get it out there. You're amazing. Thank you, you are too. <laughs> Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. 
If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.